0: Welcome to The Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. OK, I have a joke. It's a really good joke, by the way.
1: What did the fish say when he ran into the wall? What? Damn.
2: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download the culture show that helps you win your dinner party.
0: You just got a joke from actor Joel Edgerton. That'll help break the ice. Joel stars in Exodus, currently the number one movie at the box office. Mm. Later, we'll speak with B.J.
2: Novak, actor and author of the best-selling children's book, The Book with No Pictures. A perfect subject for radio. Indeed. Plus, we search for General So of chicken fame. Author Miriam Taves reads from her new novel. And we're not making this up. Tom Wopat and John Schneider, a.k.a. the Dukes of Hazard. Sing Christmas tunes. Because. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All
3: week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Sony canceled its scheduled release of a comedy based on a fictional plot to assassinate Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The Church of England appoints its first female bishop. Through
4: these changes... We intend to create more opportunities for the American and Cuban people.
2: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Sadie Stein. She is a contributing editor at the Paris Review, whose winter issue just came out this week. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
5: I
6: thought I would talk about the uh, reality TV show Prince of Poets, which airs on Abu Dhabi TV.
2: Oh. All right. Tell us about this show.
5: Yeah. Well, Prince
6: of Poets, contrary to the name, invites both male and female poets to uh, compete for the title. Basically, thousands of applicants submit their poetry and vie for a symbolic cloak and ring and of course the glory of being the Prince of Poets. Oh
2: wow. So it's a, po- it's a poet competition. Yeah. It's
6: a poetry reality show. So it's
2: like the voice yeah. except instead of singing they're sighing. Yeah.
6: Well I <laughs> mean there's, there's, there's pre-prepared poetry but at the same time there's extemporaneous verse that they have to compose off the cuff. Oh wow.
0: Wow. That sounds so, and now it's like Whose Line Is It Anyway the improv show. It's
6: like everything. It's like every yeah. great show you've ever heard. Heard of rolled into one
2: with poetry. You win a rejection letter from the New Yorker. Like what is what's no, the think, ultimate goal I here? I think they win a salary for the first time in their lives. Right.
0: This
6: cloak and ring are pretty impressive. You can't see it, but I urge you to hey, look at that. That
0: will go great with the eyeliner and moleskin notebook. <laughs> well. Perfect. I do have to ask though. I mean, like, is this a very popular show? It
6: is it has an audience of millions. It has outstripped wow. sports. Its ratings are better than almost anything else.
2: That's cool. So their Super Bowl is for poetry. And the halftime commercials are for pens.
6: (laughs) The best-selling pens (laughs) in all of the United Arab Emirates.
0: Sadie Stein, thank you so much for the small talk.
6: Thank you for having me. Check out the
0: winter issue. And now time for cocktails.
2: Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in
0: the form of a cocktail. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. First,
2: the history part. 113 years ago this week, a guy from Massachusetts applied for the patent on a device that improved the lives of a lot of people. Especially landfill owners. Michelle Philippi
0: tells the tale.
7: When a razor gets too dull to shave, most folks buy a fresh disposable blade. When it happened to King C. Gillette, he invented disposable blades. The year was 1895, and King was using a newfangled contraption called the safety razor. Unlike a straight razor, it had a protective plate that exposed just enough blade to safely shave his whiskers. But like a straight razor, the thick blade had to be sharpened when it got dull. It eventually had to be sent away to be honed by a pro. One morning, bummed that his safety blade was on its last legs, King had an idea that hit him, quote,
8: more with the rapidity of a dream than the slow process of reasoning.
7: He envisioned a razor handle into which guys could put a wafer-thin blade. When it got dull, they'd just throw it out. Metallurgists told King he could never make a blade thin and cheap enough to trash, but sturdy enough to actually shave. So he hired an engineer to design one anyway. Six years later, they founded the American Safety Razor Company, later named Gillette. The invention was a hit, and with a picture of King adorning every pack of blades, he literally became the face of successful capitalism. Which is ironic, since he was a passionate socialist. He published books describing his concept of an utopian communal megacity run by a single publicly-owned corporation, and powered by energy from Niagara Falls. King did eventually experience the downside of capitalism. He lost his fortune in the Great Depression and died broke. But the market he pioneered is still going strong. Americans now buy an estimated 2 billion disposable razors and blades per year.
0: So that was the history, and now for the drink to go with it. I'm speaking with Steve Bowman. He is co-owner of Fairstead Kitchen in Brookline, Mass., where Mr. Gillette resided when he patented his disposable safety razors. And, Steve, what drink did that inspire?
5: Well, we're calling it the King's Fizz, of course, in honor of Mr. King Gillette himself.
0: All right. A royal-sounding drink for a captain of industry.
5: Absolutely. And we wanted to reflect both the history of Boston and Brookline rum, and morning traditions, okay. so <laughs> like shaving, little shaving, a little coffee liqueur in there,
0: oh, I see. all of
5: those things that are good in the morning.
0: So something to wake you up. But you mentioned rum. Rum is a, is typical of the Brookline area.
5: It really is. There's a rum distillery established on the edge of Brookline in the late 1600s and continued to be distilled until the turn of the 20th century. So we thought it was fitting for this drink.
0: Sure. So you've got you mentioned coffee liqueur what, and rum. How does this put together?
5: Begins with the dark rum, okay. coffee liqueur, and grenadine, dry curacao, as well as an egg white.
0: Oh, so it is kind of like breakfast. You get your omelet
5: Absolutely. in there. Absolutely, <laughs> this is the start of a great day.
0: Uh, what else is in there?
5: There's a. After this gets shaken without ice, and then again with ice, it is strained into a glass and topped. With little Coca-Cola, perhaps the second national beverage. There you go. You get that jolt of caffeine, however you take it.
0: <laughs> Coffee and Coke. Jeez. And
5: my favorite thing about this drink is that egg white gives it this rich, frothy top that reminds me of shaving cream to begin the morning.
0: <laughs> I actually, I have to tell you, when I thought about what I would do for a shaving-themed cocktail, I imagined maybe chocolate sprinkles in there. So when ah. you're done, there'd be a ring of them in the bottom of the glass, like your shaved whiskers <laughs> in the <a> sink. <laughs>
5: That's Um, creative. I must confess, we never thought about whiskers in the beverage.
0: (laughs) Good. I'm really glad you didn't. And Brendan, I love that Gillette was this progressive utopianist.
2: Unexpected, I agree.
0: But it's ironic because my idea of utopia would be a world where safety razors don't carve my face to pieces. (laughs)
2: That's right. would be great. Or where styptic pencils are free.
0: Oh, I'd love, that would be a great feature.
2: <laughs> uh, folks, we've got the recipe for that cocktail on our website, along with plenty more. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, had
0: a drink, and now let's eavesdrop on a well-told story.
2: All right, we're going to listen in on Canadian author Miriam Taves. She's written for The Guardian and The New York Times Magazine, and she's won many of her home country's biggest literary awards, some of them several times. Her new novel is about a family grappling with depression. Today, we overhear an excerpt.
9: Hi, my name is Miriam Taves. My new book is called All My Puny Sorrows. Uh, it's a book about two sisters, Elfrida and Yolandi. Elfrida would very much like to die, and Yolandi, her younger sister, very much wants to keep her alive. And This is a story that comes from my own experience. Our house was taken away on the back of a truck one afternoon, late in the summer of 1979. My parents and my older sister and I stood in the middle of the street and watched it disappear. A low-slung bungalow made of wood and brick and plaster, slowly making its way down First Street, past the A&W and the Deluxe Bowling Lanes, and out onto the number 12 highway, where we eventually lost sight of it. I can still see it, said my sister Elfrida repeatedly, until finally she couldn't. I can still see it. I can still see it. I can still... Okay, nope, it's gone, she said. My father had built it himself back when he had a new bride, both of them barely 20 years old, and a dream. My mother told Elfrida and me that she and my father were so young and so exploding with energy that on hot evenings, just as soon as my father had finished teaching school for the day, and my mother had finished the baking and everything else. They'd go running through the sprinkler in their new front yard, whooping and leaping completely oblivious to the stares and consternation of their older neighbors who thought it unbecoming of a newly married Mennonite couple to be cavorting, half-dressed, in full view of the entire town. Years later, Elfrida would describe the scene as my parents' La Dolce Vita moment and the sprinkler as their Trevi Fountain. Where's it going? I asked my father. We stood in the center of the road. The house was gone. My father made a visor with his hand to block the sun's glare. I don't know, he said. He didn't want to know. Elfrida and my mother and I got into our car and waited for my father to join us. He stood looking at emptiness for what seemed like an eternity to me. Finally, my mother reached over and honked the horn. Only slightly, not enough to startle my father but to make him turn and look at us. It was such a hot summer and we had a few days to kill before we could move into our new house, which was similar to our old house, but not one that my father had built himself. And so my parents decided we should go camping in the Badlands of South Dakota. We spent the whole time, it seemed, setting everything up and then tearing it all down. My sister, Elfrida, said it wasn't really life It was like being in a mental hospital, where everyone walked around with the sole purpose of surviving. It was like being in a refugee camp. It was a halfway house for recovering neurotics. It was this and that. She didn't like camping. And our mother said, well honey, it's meant to alter our perception of things. Paris would do that too, said Elf or LSD. And our mother said, come on, the point is, we're all together, let's cook our wieners. The propane stove had an oil leak and exploded into four-foot flames and charred the picnic table. But while that was happening, Elfrida danced around the fire singing Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks, a song about a black sheep saying goodbye to everyone because he's dying. And her father swore for the first recorded time, what in the Sam Hills? And stood close to the fire, poised to do something. But what? What? And our mother stood there shaking, laughing, unable to speak. I yelled at my family to move away from the fire, but nobody moved an inch, as if they had been placed in their positions by a movie director and the fire was only fake. Then I grabbed the half-empty rainbow ice cream pail that was sitting on the picnic table and ran across the field to a communal tap and filled the pail with water and ran back and threw the water onto the flames, which left higher then, towards the branches of an overhanging poplar tree. A branch sparked into fire, but only briefly because by then the skies had darkened and suddenly rain and hail began their own swift assault and we were finally safe at least from fire
0: author miriam taves reading from her award-winning new novel all my puny sorrows that piece was edited for time
2: Okay, we're gonna take a break. Coming up, author and TV star B.J. Novak makes his list of the best things in the world. Love,
1: Jesus Christ, Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Seinfeld. When the Dinner Party Download continues.
0: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food,
2: and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. Lots of great stuff coming up on the show, but first, we wanted to play you a clip from our holiday party. That's right,
0: we had one. Last weekend, uh, we hosted a live holiday frolic at KPCCFM's Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena, California. Ooh. Yeah, there was music, libations, and performances, including this one from Mr. B.J. Novak.
2: He starred as Ryan Howard on TV's The Office. You may have also seen him in the film Saving Mr. Banks and on HBO's The Newsroom, and he's also written two best-selling books. One of them is a humor collection called One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories, from which we asked him to read a selection. Rico introduced him like this.
0: A warm, frolicky welcome, please, for BJ Novak.
1: Thank you very much. This is a story Inspired uh, by this season of lists and best ofs and awards and it's called the best thing in the world awards Many of the nominees were returning love Jesus Christ Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Seinfeld (laughs) Losing gracefully which never won, but was always nominated Sunrises peace which was often a finalist during times of war, but was otherwise not nominated Summer evenings, the score to West Side Story, laughter and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Others were new, internet on planes, (laughs) spicy tuna on crispy rice. Love always won. Everyone knew that and watched anyway, perhaps even more eagerly, the way that people are more willing to get caught up in a certain type of movie when they have a sense that deep down, of course, love is going to win in the end. The fun isn't whether love is going to win, The fun is in seeing how. Welcome to the Best Thing in the World Awards, announced the host, Neil Patrick
3: Harris.
1: (laughs) He had been the host for the past four years, and he was terrific at it. When are you going to be nominated? He was asked each year as he walked the red carpet on the way in, and he'd laugh it off. And so would the viewers at home. He was a fundamentally great host, there was no doubt about that. But it said a lot about how seriously people took the awards, that he wouldn't be nominated, at least not for a long, long time. An award show host? No, sorry. We love him, was the unspoken collective answer to this question, but we're talking about the best thing in the world here. (laughs) Your votes, you the viewers at home, are taken into account along with our confidential panel of experts and judges, all to determine the best of the best of the best. Most people skipped or only half watched the first 90 minutes of the show. There were dance troupes, some subtitled singing. A man named Louie performed some stand-up comedy, but there wasn't too much he could say on network television. (laughs) Pixar debuted a 90-second short film that was everyone agreed, maybe just average for them, but great for anyone else. (laughs) It was the final half hour that everyone watched intently, when the three finalists were announced, and then narrowed down to two, and then finally, a single winner, the best thing in the world. Neil Patrick Harris returned to the stage wearing a crisp blue suit that sharp viewers recognized as the best of its kind. (laughs) The three finalists for the best thing in the world are laughter, applause, love, applause, and nothing.
2: B.J. Novak, reading from his story, The Best Thing in the World Awards. You'll find the whole thing on our website and on a special podcast-only holiday episode we'll post online later this week. And as you probably sense, the
0: story takes a dark turn as nothing gives love a run for its money. Mm-hmm. Uh, when B.J. finished his reading, we talked to him about the story and his other written work.
2: B.J. Novak. B.J. B.J.
1: It was a little dark for a frolic, but I thought I could take us there. (laughs) But it was was about love.
2: Yeah. Which is the season, it's a little bit about love. A beautiful lie. What's that? No, sorry. (laughs) uh, Tell us about where that story came from.
1: You know, there's a phrase, the best thing in the world, the best thing ever, it's a very present phrase. And award shows are very present. And I suppose I wondered, what if someone really did try to make a commercial broadcast of the best thing in the world? Yeah, but the nothing part. Yeah. (laughs) The well, darkness. I thought, what if, what if something as existentially large as would be debated in an actual competition for something as existentially major as the best thing in the world? <laughs> what if something like that crept in? What mm. if that were actually in contest?
2: Well, why Neil Patrick Harris? Like, why not a radio host?
0: Oh, uh, why not? Like <laughs> We, so a lot of kids are going to be reading another of your books this holiday season. I hope so. <laughs> Us too. Well, a lot of people have. Actually, This it's called The Book With No Pictures. It has been number one, I believe, on the New York Times bestseller list for like 10 weeks. Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's it's had a nice that's uh, right.
0: holiday season. I didn't know kids had that much money, but that's yeah. amazing.
1: It's going to me. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> for those who uh, don't know, yeah. what's the concept? The concept is uh, that whenever a parent is given a book that they're asked to read, that the kid is sort of waving to them. The kid actually has all this tremendous power because the rules of book reading are such that the authority figure who usually makes all the decisions is actually sort of a, an actor for hire um, <laughs> with the script that this kid is in charge of. So the idea of the book is that whoever is reading the book has to say all these words, even if the words say very silly things.
2: You kind of did a mini tour of elementary schools?
1: Yeah, I would. I wouldn't call it a mini tour. Was... <laughs> How many schools did you visit? I did about a dozen. And, you, and you've and you done stand-up. What was it like? Oh, this was like the best stand-up I ever did. Because this was, you know, they'd bring in the whole school of these, you know, K-3 through elementary schools or, you know, hundreds of kids. And they don't know what they're going to see. And they kind of know what a book is. They kind of know what an author is but they've certainly never seen like, a live comedy performance. <laughs> and they're sort of like, I've, I've done colleges sometimes where, where a lot of the college students even haven't seen live stand-up before. So even that is something novel, that someone's saying these crazy things on stage and no one's stopping them. <laughs> and that was exactly what was happening with these kindergartners. I would say, you know, boo-boo butt or whatever, and act shocked, and they would be elbowing each other, like pointing, like, "Did you see what this guy's saying?"
0: Um, between the two, like you you started as a stand-up comic, you performed yeah. for a lot of drunk and rowdy audiences. How rowdy compared to them were the with uh, the grade schoolers? Who's the well, rowdier? they're
1: very rowdy, except you can do something with them, which I wish you could do with stand-up audiences, which is every school has some um, sign language way to quiet the kids down. So you can, you do can just like Lors. put Lors. a finger in the air, you can put a finger to your mouth, you can snap twice and they'll all snap back. That has never once worked for me in a comedy club.
0: <laughs> they should do that. The comedy store should enact
1: some sort of signal. Oh, it'd be so fun. And were they sitting at like little cocktail tables with chocolate
2: milk? There was a two drink like minimum, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, we have two standard questions. Yeah. The first question is, <laughs> what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
1: Uh, I'm tired of being asked. Do you see yourself more as a writer or an actor? Whatever I'm doing at that time, I see myself as. I think everyone does. Although I, I believe. It's like, we, do you see yourself more as a husband or a father? Like, I, <laughs> whatever I'm doing, like everyone has multiple roles in their lives and that they're passionate about. Although it is interesting, when you came and read some of those
0: stories for our uh, radio show, which you did when it first came out, I was talking to you about this and you indicated this is something that you'd wanted to do for a long time and had never done this kind of... Yeah, Yeah, and specifically,
1: if I were to say what I really see myself as, I think it's really about having an idea and so desperately wanting to see the reaction to it. One of my friends suggested a title for One More Thing. As I wish I could watch you read this. Because I just, I wanna write things and I wanna bring it to people and yes. see if they like it. So, this type of reading a story aloud is my sort of ultimate purpose, I think. You're welcome.
2: <laughs> and you wanna be able to shush them if they don't like it. Yeah. Right. So,
1: our second question is tell us something we don't know. Oh, the most interesting fact I've ever heard, and I, I have not heard it confirmed since this one class in college, is that during the Cultural Revolution in China, very zealous communist students decided in certain towns that red stoplights should mean go, because red was the communist color. And there were so many traffic accidents uh, as the word sort of got out, like haphazardly, that eventually they had to abandon this. Right. But I thought that was the most interesting, that's still the most interesting fact I know that no other person has ever told me. I already knew that.
0: Let's just believe it.
1: Yeah, it's a great story too, even if it's not true, like it just goes to show you fill in the blank. (laughs) So Brendan did some
0: research. Yeah. It seems Chinese revolutionaries did at least float the idea of having red lights mean go. Okay. But I could not verify that that plan was ever actually implemented.
2: All right, I will say though, I was driving in LA the other day and you know, I think the plan's been implemented. (laughs) At least for some people.
0: Yeah, we're pretty revolutionary (laughs) drivers. Uh, Folks, all of BJ's story and more from our live show will be on an upcoming podcast. Subscribe to us via iTunes. All right, and to continue the holiday spirit, this week, Brendan got a Christmas present.
2: That's right. As a latchkey kid in the 80s, I ate a lot of tasty cakes, and watched a lot of TV. And my favorite show was The Dukes of Hazzard, about two cousins who ran Moonshine in their bright orange Dodge Charger. They were making their way the only way they knew how. That's exactly right. Well, this week, I got to sit in a studio with the actual Duke boys, Tom Wopat and John Schneider. Tom now tours with a band performing classic American songbook tunes, and he and John just released a Christmas album. Amazing. Yeah, so I asked them to spin us a holiday party playlist, but not before talking with them about the record and the Dukes.
4: Tom had this notion that we should do a, uh, a Christmas album about a, about a year ago. We've
10: done some work together over the years, a little of this, and a little of that, and it, it always occurred to me it would be nice to have something to sell at these. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. yeah. And, the and gift a, that keeps on giving. A
10: Christmas album seemed to be something that would be perennial. Sure. And once we got into it, once we started talking about material... It was really, really a lot of fun. It was a challenge, but it was a lot of fun. What are the first two songs we did? Uh, Santa Claus is Coming Santa to Town. Santa Claus Coming to Town is and, the one I heard. Yeah. And
2: Johnny, It's Cold Outside. Which is where you guys do a lot of ad lib and have kind fun a, with your characters. A, a yeah.
10: reimagining of the Frank Lesser tune. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. It it's not a lesser version of the Lesser tune, It's a, a more version <laughs> of the Lesser tune. Um... So I have to ask some fan questions. So, sure, sure, sure. Because as a kid, The Dukes of Hazzard was one of my favorite shows. Sweet. Yay. When Good answer. Kid, when I was a kid. <laughs> I had a recurring dream that I would I would induce when I was going to bed. I would be like, I want this dream again, where the my front lawn there was a trap door and I would slide down this like pole into this imaginary land and you guys would be there with the General Lee. I have a recurring wow. dream. It has a pole in it too. Oh, but- did did a really young kid with buck teeth come uh, down? Well, oh well, yeah, you came down. The <laughs> that was you. Wow, man, I knew we were cosmically connected. And you could force yourself to have that dream. And then we would drive around and like jump over creeks and stuff like
10: that. It was that much fun. Let me tell you. <laughs> (laughs) It it was was that much fun. fun. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, if uh, they were busy with something else, they would put us in a car with a camera attached to the side,
2: and we'd go off and just drive and do scenes. How old were you two when the Duke started? I was 18 when we started. I was 27. And they were like, here's a hot car, here's your makeup trailer, here's a bunch of money. Go have fun? Well, it wasn't It wasn't exactly quite like that. Like that.
4: <laughs> there was a lot of responsibility involved in Dukes. It took uh, we we worked every day, uh, minimum 12 hours a day, 10 months a year. Mm. It was great fun, but it was like having to be at Disney World, you know? I mean, you you had fun while you were there, but you you had the freedom to be there on time. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. leave do what you were told and leave when you were told.
2: The General Lee, it had a backseat, right? The yeah. General Lee had a back seat, Yes. Yeah. So theoretically, you, there could be another Duke. Oh sure, sure. We sure. many times we had we Uncle stopped, Jesse back there. We had
10: the stuffed boss through
2: there one time. Dude, but do you could I join the Dukes hazard? Like, could I be?
10: Oh sure, the long lost sure, sure, cousin. Sure, sure. Yeah.
2: What would your name be? Uh, I don't know. We got Luke Beau, and Bo, and uh, you can call me probably Brandon. That sounds a little it's two funny. syllables. I don't know.
4: Oh, okay. See Luke Frank, Duke, Beau Duke. Duke, okay, Frank Duke. Um, Frank's not bad. Duke. Frank Duke, Frank Duke, Hank. Hank Duke. Hank Duke. Hank there Duke. you go. Yeah? Hank guys? is good. I'm yeah. in? You're in. You're I'm in. On, I'm honored. Just don't blow up the outhouse again. We just got it rebuilt. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. Well, how about let's hear your your Christmas soundtrack while I take the general leave for a spin, okay? Sure, sure, sure. Whatever you want. Okay, have fun, guys.
10: Ladies and gentlemen, this is our... Christmas party song list, and I'm going to let my cousin, Mr. John Schneider, go on first.
4: Okay. Well, one of my favorite songs ever, because my mom had it on 45, was "I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus" by the incomparable Brenda Lee. Love it. So clever and sweet as pie. Sweet as pie.
3: I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus.
4: The great thing about this song is it's a an event at Christmas. From a child's perspective, usually it's uh, from the parent's perspective, saying Santa's coming and all that. This is a little girl walking down the stairs, and she sees Mommy kissing Santa Claus. And what a what a laugh it would have been if Daddy had only seen. Or a little boy. Or a little boy. Or a, a little boy. Yeah. But Brenda Lee right, right, is a little girl. Would have been a little girl. Yeah.
3: So Mommy tickles Santa Claus.
4: We're at the beginning of the party. The eggnog boat is still full. And I've got a nice, uh, there's a circle of ice in the middle so that you always scoop the eggnog up out from inside the circle. It's also where you pour the cinnamon and the nutmeg. Nutmeg, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to keep that going. And maybe a little spiced rum. John loves eggnog. I like eggnog very much. So, Tom, here, I'm going to open up a little bottle of cheer. Ow. Nice.
10: This is a little later in the evening. And I, I mean, I got to hear Frank. Oh, good. With the Paige-Kavanaugh trio on Let It Snow, Let It Snow,
0: Let, let It, it snow. snow. Paige Kavanaugh front and center, son. Keep it soft and singable, Paige. Oh. The weather outside is
10: frightful It's not that well-known version of that tune. And, you know, I love to hear that stuff. Uh, You hear so many of the same things every Christmas, that hearing something that's a little bit on the edge is is always interesting.
0: Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow
10: One night we played up in the Catskills. My trio and I played up there. And we noticed about halfway through the set that everybody was leaving, and so we—do you notice that a lot? There was a big <laughs> smart. There was a, a big picture window behind us, and the snow was coming down. Uh-huh. And by the next morning, I, when I woke up in the cabin, there was 29 inches on the ground. Holy mackerel! I still get the thing when I see it start to snow. Yeah. It still feels like a snow day for. Yeah. Uh, you're looking forward to getting six or eight inches on the ground so that you can't go to school. The fire is
4: slowly dying. But my dear, we're still
10: goodbye. So what
4: do you got? You got another one? I got my favorite Burl Ives. Oh gosh. And he sang a song called Silver and Gold. Silver and Gold. Silver and Gold. Silver and gold. gold. Everyone wishes. For silver and gold. So I'd like to play that. I'm, I'm sitting around the fire pit now. Got a nice uh, all-night log sitting there from one of the trees we, we uh, oh, so you're salvaged, back in Louisiana salvaged out of the swamp. Yep, yep. So it's actually probably cypress. Fallen cypress, by the way. Don't ever cut down a cypress tree. They're very rare and unusual. Kind of like you. I'm going to put my feet up. (laughs) I'm going to have a little more eggnog. And I'm going to listen to one of my favorite singers. Really great storyteller.
7: Silver and gold decorations on every Christmas tree.
10: Listen. What? What? There's one song on our record that I think is the most infectious Latin sounding Christmas song I've ever heard. The
4: Steve Allen tune. Yes. Steve Allen tune. I
10: originally heard Louis Armstrong sing and he swung it. (traduber) So I didn't really, I thought it would be a good idea not to swing it just because he swings it so well. So we had Rob Mounsey, who's a very esteemed arranger, put some horn arrangements on it. It's called Cool Yule. Love it. From Coney Island to the Sunset Strip, somebody's gonna make a happy trip tonight.
4: Oh, it's so great everybody's leaving the party cuz they've got their little little party favors. That's which right. is terrific. Little And they seem to be in
10: a good mood. How and could they the, not I be? I know be how could they,
4: they not be? You know what's stuffed into each of those little party favor bags is Cole. Home for Christmas. <laughs> no, <laughs> not coal, Tom.
10: Here come a when the snows the most.
0: Tom Wopat and John Schneider, their new album is called Home for Christmas, and speaking of coming home, I'm glad you made it back in one piece, Brendan. Call me Hank. Yeah. Coming up, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post give you the gift of good manners when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Hank Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, Emily Post's Great Great Grandchildren <laughs> answer your etiquette questions, and we hear a new track from an R&B icon, D'Angelo, has a new album out. It is the talk of the town, but first, it's time for the main course where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, food. Actually, this story is more appropriate for the day after a dinner party, mm. when you're tired of cooking, and order some takeout Chinese. Oh,
0: delicious. Also, a Christmas Day tradition for many of us of the Jewish persuasion. So I've heard. That's right. Uh,
2: And one of the most popular Chinese dishes is undeniably General Tso's chicken. Of course. There are variations, but it's essentially a sweet and savory deep fried chicken dish with red chilies and vinegar. Mm. One fan is filmmaker Ian Cheney, who was inspired by it to make a new documentary. It's called The Search for General Tso. But when we met, he admitted his film's only partly about the dish itself.
3: Well, it turns out that a movie about General So's chicken is a movie about uh, a lot of things. It's a movie about the Chinese-American experience. It's a movie about how food shapes culture and how culture shapes food, and also how food provided a entry point for Chinese-Americans in a culture that was really not ready to accept them as part of America. Yeah.
2: We learn that the genesis of the Chinese-American restaurant is actually rooted... In discrimination, you know, restaurants and laundry services were some of the only jobs early Chinese immigrants were legally allowed to do.
3: Yeah, in the wake of the gold rush and uh, the building of the railroads, uh, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. It was a a singular event, really, in American immigration history. Um, You know, a, a people were basically told they could not come to the states. In the midst of this. The Chinese who were in the States found themselves shut out of many professions, and the openings they found, as you mentioned, were in, uh, were in laundry and in serving food. That paved the way for food being one of the ways in which Chinese immigrants found their way into communities all across the country. Dishes like chop suey emerged to meet American palates. Um, Chop suey really isn't something you find much in China, similar to General Tso's chicken. So chop suey was kind of the first, kind of the proto-General Tso's chicken in a way.
2: Chop suey just kind of minced meat and flavorless vegetables there, cabbage and other things. Um, We find out that's not a real Chinese dish, and neither is General Tso's exactly, but there is an actual Chinese general Name's General So.
3: There is a General So, and, and actually, when we first lit upon the idea of making a film about General So, we were realizing this was it was pre-smartphone. So I, I was eating in a small Chinese restaurant in Ohio with with my best friend and. And we were eating General So's chicken. I thought, who the heck was General So? And I suppose if we'd had a smartphone at the time, we would have just solved the mystery and been done with it, and never made this film. <laughs> um, uh, all the documentaries ruined by smartphone. Exactly. Yeah. All of our all of our curiosities appeased instantly by smartphones. Um, but uh, even 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 knowing who. General so was in a wikipedia sense there was a, there was still a larger story we we could tell so um, we found our way to general so's hometown where they were just finishing the celebration of the i guess must have been the 200th anniversary of his birth and we were shown the general so's hotel where we tasted general so's liquor um, and uh, a tour of the general so's museum and even general so's Home. Uh, so, what was his role in Chinese history? I kind of think of him as like the General Sherman of China. I mean, it's fairly contemporary with General Sherman. Also, was brought on to quell a, a rebellion. In this case, uh, General So was uh, was charged with putting down the the Taiping Rebellion, which was led by this a guy who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus Christ. So, yeah. um, <laughs> So the general was he was a fearsome. Dude, unclear how much chicken he ate um, and, <laughs> and or uh, whether what we now know is General So's chicken would have been uh, anything that he possibly could have eaten.
2: So General So is not related to the famous chicken dish, um, but we do find out that another man from Hunan province is. And I was surprised to learn that there is actually a guy who invented the dish. I thought it just kind of evolved over
3: time. Uh, Tell me about him. Seemingly, yeah. All all roads seem to point to Taipei, uh, to this man, Chef Peng, who, longing for his home province of Hunan um, and charged with creating some new dishes for a special banquet in the 50s, created this dish, which, once it found its way to the States, in the hands of other chefs, adapted and became what we now know as General Tso's Chicken, but tasting the original version, which they still make. In in Taipei in yeah. Chef Pung's restaurant, it was uh, awesome. It was uh, it was a, it was certainly not sweet. It was there was much less breading. It was a little. Um, it was almost a little. Little sour, uh, huh. certainly spicier, kind of a, a deeper soy flavor, more ginger, um, and mm. uh, you know, mouth waters as I remember it, frankly. So
2: well, your mouth waters as you remember. But Ian, I've you know, I have to ask: Can you even look at General So's Chicken at this <laughs> point? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you, you've traveled the world; you must have tasted this dish a, a zillion times. Is that still one of your moves when you go to a Chinese restaurant?
3: I, I, I do caution any uh, future documentary filmmakers out there who are focusing in on one particular dish that they really love. Just go go forth in moderation. Uh, I, I think my, you know, if you were to graph my General So's chicken consumption, it would probably, you know, be something of a sine curve where we would go through passionate bouts of eating every day and then max out and be off it. There
2: goes my milkshake movie idea. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly.
2: So, Rico, a cool part of the film is Richard Nixon's role in popularizing Chinese food. Really? In the, yeah. In the late 60s, it had fallen out of favor due to the rise of communism. Okay. But when Nixon went to China in 72, people saw photos of him dining with Mao Zedong, and they wanted uh, to try what he was eating. That's amazing. Yeah. So,
0: uh, so it could have been Tricky Dick Chicken. Could have been. I'm, gonna, I'm calling it could, that. <laughs> From now on. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the documentary comes out January 2nd. For more info, head to our website. It's
2: dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've dug into some Americanized Chinese food. Now let's learn about another holiday staple, Good Manners.
0: That's right. It's time for our regular etiquette segment, which we recorded earlier this week. Quick warning, if you're listening with young kids who are big fans of Santa Claus, who is, of course, totally real. Absolutely. For the next eight minutes, you might want to send those kids outside to build a snow fort or something. Let's roll the tape. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them today are our two etiquette elves, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post, sending they spend all year at the Emily Post Institute at the North Pole, aka Burlington, Vermont, <laughs> and tell the masses how not to be naughty. They're also great great grandkids of Emily Post, co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the eighteenth edition, and co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette. And Lizzie, Dan, welcome back. Hey, gentlemen. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Is it rude to call people elves? <laughs> no, not no. when they live in the woods.
8: Yeah. Okay, yeah.
11: all right.
0: Tolkien's elves no. are kind of lithe and pretty. That's kind of the power think of you guys. We
11: do have lists and we check them twice. So, and there's that. You know.
0: Look, we've we've asked you before what kinds of questions you get around the holidays, but do you get more of them?
11: Yes. Just categorically, yes. The,
8: the volume is at 11. It's, I
11: always feel like people are trying to get their question in just before the holiday and you're like, I'm not sure we're going to have time to answer it. Like, There's a backlog yeah. of 80 mm-hmm. questions. So is it rude <laughs> to kind
2: of wait to the last minute to ask people etiquette questions? To ask
11: your etiquette experts etiquette questions? Yes. All right. <laughs> it's like
2: Tax time. You, you want to book your accountants
0: early. It's
11: like tax time. It is like tax time. Well,
2: guess what? We have more questions for you. Awesome. So fantastic. <laughs> and we're recording you, so you have to answer them. You're
11: at the top mm-hmm. of our list. All
2: right. Well, the top of our question list is Anna in Los Angeles, and she writes, Do you really need to give presents to everybody you know because it's the holidays?
11: Mm. No. I think... Is she referencing anything about holiday tipping there? Like, does she mean presents for holiday no, tipping or is no she No, holiday talking... tipping.
2: Don't bring that okay. up again, Lizzie. That gets us in trouble every time <laughs> yes. you tell us not to tip the postman. For
0: those who didn't hear, supposedly you're not, you don't have to tip the postman. In fact, it's kind of illegal or
2: something. Yeah. And we here at the Dinner Party Download have not received any mail since that
0: broadcast.
11: Sorry. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Well, anyway, you do not have to give gifts to everyone that you know. In fact, we advise that you start off by sticking to your budget.
8: This is a classic yeah. opportunity an obligation question. The holidays is a real, it's an opportunity, but it's its not an obligation and it really is the thought that counts. Yeah. The phrasing of Anna's question bothers me. It says, do you really need to give presents? It feels like she's being pressured by yeah. someone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. People do feel pressure this time of year and definitely anything you can do to mm-hmm to absolve yourself of some of that yeah. pressure I think is is smart because really it is it's about the good feeling and the goodwill. One problem I can imagine though is if you get a present
0: from someone you weren't expecting to get it Yeah, done. I was just
11: going to say you don't have to worry about reciprocating a gift. You want to say oh my gosh that's so thoughtful of you and then just move on to a different topic of conversation. If you start pulling out the you know oh I left mine at the counter at <laughs> home or it hasn't arrived <laughs> yet white lies. I mean it's just not worth that. it hopefully if they're a good friend what they care about is that you like the gift they gave you and all you're doing in that moment is ruining that for them and making it about how you don't have a gift for them
2: all right so yeah. white christmas not white lies yes i like Ooh. it all right here's something from gila via our
0: website we're not sure where gila is from and she writes uh it has come to my attention that my 12 year old niece still believes in santa claus oh I have always been honest when she asks me questions. How do I keep from becoming the Grinch and not ruin her holiday
8: cheer? I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. Oh, got you, Dan. <laughs> do we have to talk to you?
11: Dan doesn't, Dan doesn't just, understand. Santa's real. What are you talking about?
8: I, I might need to remove myself from this discussion.
11: <laughs> Dan, go oh, wait man. in the hallway while the big kids and I talk it out. The
8: tooth fairy's
2: out there waiting for you. So is it uh, uncle or aunt's job to kind of explain this
8: sort of thing? Well, I would say you, know, you have the age-appropriate discussion with someone. It it, it might be time for some metaphoric thinking with a 12-year-old. Santa lives in the hearts and minds of children all over the world. Hold
11: on. First off the bat, I think the real appropriate thing to do is to talk to her parents about it before I would just start talking to your niece.
8: Exactly. It's not your
2: place to make the call about when the kid learns about Santa Claus. Exactly. So you should just put your earbuds in and drink (laughs) eggnog and ignore the kid, basically.
0: Although I I thought you were going to say you need to sit down with the parents and be like, why are you leading on this child for 12 long years? (laughs) A rough
2: time on the
8: playground, no question. Eh,
11: Sometimes kids are having a tough time, they just need something good to believe in, you know. And I think that's true. You don't, you just never know what's going on in people's lives. So, check with the folks first.
2: There you go. So, just keep your mouth shut. Or talk to the parents. I
11: feel really You're bad good. for all the eight year olds that listen to this show and are now yeah. going to be like, what do you I mean know. we I'm, need to have a conversation? I was gonna,
2: yeah, I was going to ask the question of whether we should ask this question. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> okay, this next question comes from Judith in Pasadena, California. And Judith writes, I, I like this question. If your hostess is using real cloth napkins and tablecloths, what is the appropriate thing to do with your napkin at the end of the meal? A, crumple it up so she knows it's used. B, leave it on your chair seat. C, fold it and leave it at your place on the table. D, other. I like this. A classic post question. It
11: is a classic post question. The answer is that you lay it to the left of your place setting. And you don't want to put it on your chair because often you can get anything that has been on the napkin onto the chair. And then if you retake your seat later, often onto you. Mm. Um, and Goat you also, cheese on the chair. Yeah, right? And you don't want to crumple it up. It's just unnecessary. Just kind of lay it gently uh, to the left of your place setting. Why the left? I don't know. It's often where Fine. it came from. Lay it to the right. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Typically the napkin is on the left if it's not right in the middle of the place setting.
8: The, the, the only thing I'd add is this is one where there's sometimes disagreement in the etiquette community. There are some etiquette experts that will give the advice that during the <laughs> meal oh, you leave I the like napkin it. on the chair and that's a signal to your server that you're returning. At the Emily Post Institute we really think that's bad advice. Oh. So in a way this is showing your
2: etiquette allegiance. Oh yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Throw it on the left. Are you like, an
11: Emily Post etiquette expert, or are you uh,
0: a... which house do you come from? Indeed, I want to see an anchorman style rumble between the post and that would
11: be so awesome and other etiquette
0: experts.
2: I think we just came up with an excellent movie idea, guys. Let's talk about <laughs> this I think
11: so, too. All right, <laughs> here's
0: something from Julia M. in Waco, Texas. Very straightforward. How do I tell my neighbor that the sound of her
8: crying child permeates my apartment? Oh, oh Tough one.
11: That this one is so
8: brutal. There are times in life where it's really not necessarily a appropriate to say something, and I would say they're probably pretty aware of how much, how often, and how loudly their child is crying. Mm. Yes. In
11: fact, they are probably constantly worried that you're upset about it. Mm. I know, I, I get worried if Benny's barking.
8: And sometimes it's parenting, but it's often not. Oftentimes it there is a child that is colicky or cries for whatever reason, and it's not Kids a question of attention yeah. from the parents yeah. or something they're necessarily going to be able to fix if you bring it to their attention. Right.
11: Go for a walk, do what you can, buy some earplugs, turn the TV on louder, whatever you can to make it easier on yourself, this too shall pass. So
8: Lizzie, you mentioned
2: Benny, I'm guessing that's your dog, not your child that barks. Yes. Um, Now what about a dog? Because again, you can't really control the animal, but then you're responsible for your animal.
11: You can't always control it. Um, It's a little bit easier in some senses that there are training methods that you can try to work with. Whichever it is that you follow, it's, it's your responsibility as a dog owner to try to curb that as best as possible. We
0: should also, though, as someone who has dealt with a neighbor's screaming child before I do absolutely sympathize but if the neighbor isn't taking all steps that they could be taking like say shutting the window of the child's room (laughs) just
2: for example well guys I think this is the appropriate question to end on because after the kids hear the Santa Claus question there's gonna be so much crying (laughs) but now we know that there's nothing anyone can do about it so Daniel Post sending Lizzie Post thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave
11: thank you and have a wonderful holiday
2: Lizzie Post and Daniel post Senning They are co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and they host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. Yay. It's on the Infinite Guest podcast network, as is our own show. Check it out at infiniteguest.org.
0: And uh, all you kids whose parents missed our earlier warning and let you hear the part about Santa Claus, the good news is we were kidding. Santa
2: totally exists. He was at our office Christmas party.
0: That's right. He looked weirdly
2: like Kai doll Did you notice that? Wait, Kai dog exists? He does. <laughs> And that concludes this episode of the Dinner Party Download. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Jeff Peters, Daniel Ramirez, and Bill Lance, engineered this week. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Thanks to John Cohn and his crew at KPCC-FM
0: in Pasadena for their help producing and recording the live portions of this episode. And now it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner
2: parties. R&B superstar D'Angelo had Put out a new record in 14 years until this week. That's right. When his 12 track album Black Messiah suddenly appeared online, the critical response has been rapturous for good reason. Here's a tune called Sugar Daddy. Bon appetit.
9: Her price things to on my A lace set up Ow, ow. should've when you toss that toy The way she make it the face, it's
2: Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks very much Wait, for... Wait, are you eating a chip witch? Yeah. Did you know chip witch was the name of a real guy? Really? Yeah, he was a tennis pro at Nantucket Racquet Academy. And he invented the chip witch? No, he was just a rich jerk. Hmm.